Good morning. The reading of God's Word this morning comes from 2 Chronicles 24, 1 through 4, and 13 through 25. In the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 375. And in the following Jesus Bible, you can find that on page 457. Joash was seven years old when, when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zabiah of Beersheba. And Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada got for him two wives, and he had sons and daughters. After this, Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord. So those who were engaged in the work labored, and the repairing went forward in their hands, and they restored the house of God to its proper condition and strengthened it. And when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada, and with it were made utensils for the house of the Lord, both for the service and for the burnt offerings, and dishes for incense and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord regularly in the days of Jehoiada. But Jehoiada grew old and full of days and died. He was 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings, because he had done good in Israel and toward God and his house. Now after his death, after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and they served Asherim and the idols. And the wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. At the end of the year, the army of the Syrians came upon, up against Joash. They came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the princes of the people and among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Though the army of the Syrians had come with few men, the Lord delivered into their hand a very great army because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. When they had departed from him, leaving him severely wounded, his servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest and killed him on his bed. So he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tomb of the kings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones first grade and under, uh, they can head on over for children's worship. Remember, we graduated up uh, last week, so we have some that are are here with us for the first time or second time in worship, and we're glad to have you kids here with us. Well, if you couldn't tell, I'm off this week. That's why I have short sleeves on, right? 
So um, one of the wonderful things about being in the EPC is that we get two weeks of study leave every year where we get to just go be a nerd for a week. So I've been reading books all week and drinking lots of coffee, which meant I was not writing a sermon for today. So we invited a, a, a new member of our presbytery. So Pastor Colton Underwood is an assistant pastor at First Presbyterian Baton Rouge. We examined him as a presbytery back in April, right? Or was it January? Is it April? So uh, I am a member of the ministerial committee. So if you don't know anything about Presbyterianism, the Presbytery is the regional body. And one of the main things that we do is we examine new pastors or pastors who are transferring in before they go to a church. We're kind of like the protectors of the, the local church in a sense. I'm a member of that committee, and I just joined. And the first person that I ever got to examine on the committee was Colton Underwood. And uh, I tried my best to make him sweat. I, I don't know that I succeeded. Uh, and his, his examination on the floor of Presbytery was phenomenal uh, in terms of just remarkable poise and uh, just a, a guy that really knows the word. But to cap it all off, he was, you have to preach to be uh, approved. He was preaching uh, to the Presbytery, and halfway through his sermon, Jonathan Crowder leaned over to me and said, we need to get this guy to preach for us. And I said, I agree 110%. So we are really glad to have you, Colton. We're glad to have you in the Gulf South Presbytery, and we are certainly glad to have you here at FPC. So come preach God's word to us, brother. Now on. Very good. Y'all uh, are, are too kind and, and spoil me. Um, my wife, Rachel's here with me, of course. Thank you for welcoming us. Uh, we're new to the South. We are both natural-born Yankees, but uh, we're, we're, we feel so warmly welcomed, feel so uh, wrapped up here. This has become very much our home, and so uh, as such, the Gulf South Presbytery is also our home. And also, man, you're spoiling me because usually I read uh, the passage, and that's a long passage, so thank you for reading that for me. That makes my job even easier. Um, if you've not got a lot of familiarity with the book of Second Chronicles, uh, that's okay. That's, in a lot of ways, understandable. First and Second Chronicles, of course, if you've made your way ever through a sort of book-by-book, uh, -book, cover to cover reading of the Bible, I recommend it to you. It's a, it's a noble task. It's a good thing. Uh, you'll find yourself moving from Genesis, really, uh, through Second Kings in a continuous narrative. You're going to be getting a fairly linear trajectory as far as history is concerned. And, and it'll be uh, one after the other following a story pretty uh, simply and straightforwardly. And then all of a sudden you're going to flip over into First Chronicles. And not only are you going to be confronted by a, a wall of text, lists of, of names that are hard to wade through... But then you're also going to find out that once you get through that, you're in sort of the same waters that you were in for Samuel and for Kings. It's going to feel like deja vu. Maybe you're going to feel like, why do I need to read First and Second Chronicles? Because most of it's actually the same material from Samuel and Kings. Um, I would commend reading First and Second Chronicles because not only does it offer some different material, it's also coming from a different perspective. Uh, Samuel and Kings were written earlier in uh, the history of God's people, and Chronicles really kind of comes from a later perspective, likely not only after the exile of the people of Israel, but after the return. The temple has been rebuilt. We're in the sort of second temple period. Uh, the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt, and the seat, uh, David's throne remains empty. 
And so that question lingers for the people of God as, as we approach First and Second Chronicles of where is the king to sit on David's throne? God made a promise to place a king to sit on David's throne forever. So where is he? So First and Second Chronicles enter in and they really sort of uh, sort focus in, hyper-focus on the line of Judah and the, the house of David to find who that son of David might be. One after the other, we see these kings in Judah in particular, and there are good kings and there are bad kings. And then we find ourselves with the king that we are confronted with here today in Second Chronicles 24, and that's King Joash. He's Jehoash in other places. That's because Hebrew names can be kind of funky. Um, but Joash is uh, about 200 or so years after David, around 800 B.C. He's somewhat of an enigma as far as the kings of Judah go. He has some of the highest of highs and yet also some of the lowest lows. He is a, a story that's really tragic. There's betrayal, there's subterfuge, there's something of everything here in the story of Joash. So as we've heard it and now uh, really work our way through it, I want to pray one more time for us as we consider what we have before us. Uh, Lord God, you who speak a word and it is done, would you continue by your spirit to speak to our hearts? Um, show us this stark example and warn us, warn us rightly, but also comfort us. We pray that you would come to us in a very powerful way in this time. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you come to know me to any great depth, and I think Jason is pretty uh, transparent about this about himself, I'm a pretty big nerd. Uh, I love, always have, really, um, things related to uh, swords and knights and chivalry and kings and queens and, and castles and things of that nature. I actually have a picture that I can show you afterward uh, of myself at, I believe, three years old, all kitted up. My mother had made for me with like paper and cardboard, uh, a sword and shield and a crown, and I had taken a blanket and I'd wrapped it around my neck as sort of a cape. Uh, I've always been entranced by those sorts of things. And so naturally, my eye is drawn to a story like Joash's. Because especially if you understand the context of Joash's life, you'll understand that the story of Joash, which is a true story, almost seems like it would belong more in the pages of some epic fantasy novel than it would in the pages of Holy Writ. Now, to understand that again, I've got to kind of back up and give you a brief backstory of how Joash came to power. Of course, you maybe got a glimpse of that in verse 1. If you were listening, we read, Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. Seven years old. Not exactly a typical age to come to power, to become a king. Not even uh, that many years ago. So how did he come to power? Well, to understand that, you need to know that his father was a king in Judah, was one of the sons of David. And Ahaziah, his father, only reigned for one year in Jerusalem. And then he died. And dying so young, without really any rightful heirs to succeed to the throne, he left a power vacuum. And really in the midst of that power vacuum, instead of a king stepping into that place, a wicked queen stepped in. And this wicked queen, her name is Athaliah. And Athaliah, she, in order to secure her power, which was traditional in that day, she systematically went about killing off the rightful heirs, those who might try to push her off the throne and become king in her place. So one by one, she killed the sons of David, but she missed out on one. 
And the one she missed out on was, of course, Joash. And the reason why Joash was spared is because a woman, a bold woman, Jehoshabeath by name, she's actually the wife of Jehoiada the priest that we read about in chapter 24. She saw little one-year-old Joash. She saw him in danger, and she took him away. Like Moses was hidden from the slaughter of the innocents in Egypt, she hid Joash in the last place a wicked pagan queen would ever look. In the temple where her husband worked. So for six years, Joash was hidden and was raised up in the temple, in the house of the Lord, with Jehoiada the priest, essentially as his father, raising him up to follow the Lord, raising him up to be king on David's throne one day. And so six years they waited until finally, at the age of seven, Jehoiada was emboldened and his sons with him. They marched out with others, their, their sort of allies around them marched outside of the temple, outside of its courts, taking Joash with them for the first time in a very long time. They brought the the royal diadem, the the crown, to sit on the heads of the kings of Judah. They placed it on Joash's head. They handed him a copy of the covenant to symbolize his dedication to the Lord. And they anointed him with holy anointing oil, all the while shouting, Long live the king! As the shouts continued to grow and and a crowd began to build, Athaliah heard of this, the wicked queen. She went out to see what was happening and immediately seeing this coronation ceremony in front of her, shouted for treason. But the crowd had been whipped in such a fervor and was so excited to see the return of the Davidic king that they were ready to be rid of her, the wicked queen. So they took Athaliah that day. They dragged her to the gate of the palace and they killed her on the day of Joash's coronation. So here Joash has come to power at, again, the age of seven. And at the age of seven, you don't usually have the, the wisdom, the faculties to govern, to command, to lead. And so he needs someone to guide him until he's of age, until he can do that for himself. And who better to guide Joash as king than the man who is essentially his father, Jehoiada the priest? That's really what happens. Jehoiada the priest and Joash the king work together. They work in tandem for years, decades likely. And through their leadership, the Lord blesses Judah. We see peace and prosperity brought back to the land as well as true religion. At the end of chapter 23, we would have read that the pagan altars to Baal were torn down. And then in chapter 24, we read as Joash sort of spearheaded the effort, they both uh, restored, repaired the temple, the house of the Lord. This partnership was blessed by God, but it, it couldn't last forever, of course. Jehoiada was considerably older than Joash, and eventually, as we read in verses 15 and 16, he had to die. He was 130 years old once he died, and he was so honored, so revered at his death that they buried him, not just in some common grave that most priests or maybe with other priests, they buried him with the kings. They loved Jehoiada. But the moment that Jehoiada died, something was unveiled. What seemed like an equal partnership actually was not. It actually was much more Joash leaning like a crutch on Jehoiada And once Jehoiada was gone, once Jehoiada, the priest, was out of the picture, not giving advice to Joash, not leading him by the hand, Joash, like a a three-legged stool with one leg chopped off, immediately topples and falls. 
We see that turn take place very quickly because in verse 17, after Jehoiada dies, in place of Jehoiada's wise counsel, the princes of Judah come and give not wise counsel. And so we read uh, these ominous words in verse 17, then the king listened to them. And immediately the quality of their advice, of their counsel, is unveiled because uh, they abandon the house of the Lord. They, they go away from the temple and instead serve idols. They serve the Asherim and the idols. Joash had gone through all this work to restore the temple, to restore the house of the Lord. And immediately, now that he's got these other counselors kind of pushing him in a different direction, he abandons the house of the Lord, abandons the Lord altogether. Because of that, wrath comes against them, but God is merciful. And we read in verse 19 that he sent messengers to them, messengers of hope, messengers of repentance. He sent prophets to speak the word of the Lord to them, to bring them back to God. But again, ominous words in verse 19, they would not pay attention. It gets so bad, the descent falls so far that God even clothes Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. Again, this Zechariah would have essentially been the closest thing that Joash ever would have known to a brother. He would have eaten with him. He would have played with him. He would have talked with him. He would have known him. And so Zechariah here, almost as a last-ditch effort to appeal to Joash's heart to bring him back to faithfulness to the Lord, Joash, in response, hardens his heart again. And by command of the king, as we read in verse 21, they stoned Zechariah with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. It's gone so far that Joash would even kill a man that he loves, a holy man, with a holy message in a holy place. It's gotten so bad now that the Lord continues to send messengers, but these messengers are no longer messengers of hope and of repentance. They're actually messengers of judgment and of destruction. That's why in verses 23 and following, we see, we see that small raiding bands of the Syrians come against Judah and Jerusalem and embarrass them. They kill the wicked princes, they, they plunder and sack them, and they injure Joash the king in the process. And so here's Joash at the age of 47, taking to his bed to recover from his wounds in these battles, and his servants get an idea. They see him vulnerable and know that this is their chance to be free of him. Joash's star had, had burned so brightly. He was so promising. His, his background was really mythical. It was a hero's backstory. But he had turned and fallen so far, so quickly, they were ready to be rid of him. So they came to him with knives in the dark, and they killed Joash on his bed. Joash, in contrast to Jehoiada, who died uh, and was buried with the kings, Joash dies in utter disgrace. They look at him as a stain on David's line, as a dark spot on the throne, and they will not even bury him in the tombs of the kings. This is a story of, of a sharp ascent of Joash to power in a, a dramatic, almost mythic way. And then we see this surprising, shocking turn of apostasy, of falling away, which leads to a, a very downward trajectory all the way to his ultimate assassination. What are we to make of that? How does this apply to our lives, to our situation 2,800 years later? There are about three things, well, three things exactly, that I think we ought to pay attention to specifically as we consider Joash's life and bring it into our own situation and our own context. 
The first of these is the nature of apostasy. Again, that's the nature of apostasy. Apostasy, A-P-O-S-T-A-S-Y. It's probably printed out somewhere for you. Regardless, apostasy just means uh, falling away. If you've not heard that word used before, that's totally all right. It means those who appear to be genuinely following God, all of a sudden doing an about-face. Saying, you know what, I'd rather not. And going a completely different direction. Falling away. I would contend with you that this is the most shocking part of our story. Joash has all the right things in place. He has all the right ingredients to make for a faithful life, to make for a great king, to make for a man who leads God's people in a way that's, that's history and, and, and is uh, in lights, really. But it falls so quickly. The nature of apostasy, then, we have to understand as we look at Joash's case is that it is both real and deceptive. It is real and deceptive. In the first place, I say that it's real and dwell on that simply because um, we have a tendency, I would say, especially those of us who are good Presbyterians who know our five points of Calvinism. I love the doctrines of grace, but oftentimes we get our hackles up when we hear about apostasy, when we hear about falling away, even when we hear it in Scripture. We start to get on the defensive a little bit. We think, wait a minute, I, I believe that that those who are saved of God are, are always saved. I believe in perseverance of the saints. They went out from us because they were not of us. Yes and amen. But if we seek to immediately explain away the hard parts of Scripture that depict stuff like this, that depict apostasy, following, falling away, that if we explain these away so quickly, we actually do a danger and disservice to those for whom these texts are meant those whose faith is not genuine in the first place. Apostasy happens. Falling away happens. Many of you probably are aware of it in your own lives, in, in even your own intimate circles of, of people, of those who seem to be following, following the Lord, suddenly falling away. It is real. It happens from our perspective and point of view. And it is also deceptive. It's real and deceptive. Deceptive, I bring that out because... We also can tempt ourselves into thinking that we can easily understand, easily imagine those who will fall away. That those who are going to, to turn away from Jesus are those who obviously only come to church a few times a year and, and their allegiances are to others and other things before they are to Christ. They've got one foot in the world and, and one foot with Jesus. Those are the ones who are going to fall away. And then it's absolutely shocking to us and it rattles our our whole worldview when those who seem to be mighty oaks of the faith strong christians who lead good godly lives from our perspective all of a sudden turn out to be dead rotten inside those of you who are maybe familiar with the ministry of ravi zacharias will know what i mean by this um or really the fallout of his ministry after his death. If you don't know about uh, his situation and all that happened under his ministry and leadership, you don't need to look into it now. I'm not going to go into the details of that. Feel free to look, look that up on your own afterward. Suffice it to say, for our purposes, that a man can be used of God as Joash was, as Ravi Zacharias was, can be used in mighty ways. Maybe some of you were positively impacted by Ravi's ministry. Maybe some of you even were saved by it. Praise God for that. 
But God can do all of those things through a man who then later on in life turns out under the facade, under the surface of godliness, turns out to be not what he was always putting on to be. That beneath the surface of what what appeared to be a godly ministry was actually a bubbling mire of deception and lies and immorality and abuse. It was beyond even what we should speak about here. I, I bring this up because in Joash's case, in Ravi's case, in our case, we need to be examining our own hearts. Jason can't know your heart perfectly. I can't know your heart perfectly. No one here can, not in this room, as a person, more than you can. Examining your own motives. Examining why you're here. Why you put up a, a front of godliness in the first place. Why you seek to live out your faith in a particular way. What's the reason behind it? We're not to be always examining ourselves so much that we become anxious, but it's good, it's healthy from time to time, especially if we, if never, if we never have before, to examine ourselves. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And in Hebrews 3, we read, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading him to fall away from the living God. I say all this and bring it up because, as Matthew Henry comments when he examines this passage, he says, it is easier to build temples than it is to be temples. Again, it is easier to build temples than it is to be temples. It is much easier to put up the facade, the the appearance of godliness, of living a good, wholesome Christian life, because that's just what's expected. Because that's what's easy. That's what's convenient. It's much easier to put up that front than it is to actually address the heart issues. It's much easier to to wear a cross necklace around everywhere you go than it is to actually take up your cross daily and follow Christ. It is much easier to build temples than it is to be temples to God. It's a great thing to build temples It's a great thing to to live out our lives in godly ways. That's what we're called to do. But is a heart reality there that flows out. Apostasy is real and deceptive. We must be examining our hearts in order to uh, beware of that very fact. But in order to then move on and move forward from that, not dwelling on that dark Uh, that dark fact. We also need to not only examine the nature of apostasy. In the second place, I want us to move to the nature of true faith. In the nature of true faith. And this definition is by no means uh, exhaustive of what true faith is. But true faith is no less than active, personal, and rooted. Again, true faith is active, personal, and rooted. And Joash turns out to never have had real faith in at all because his faith was never any of these things. It was not active, it was not personal, and it was not rooted. In the first place, it wasn't active. What I mean by active is it, it's not working itself out in love and good works. It's not flowing outward toward others. It seemed at the beginning, maybe, that that was what was happening. I mean, Joash, again, he rebuilt the temple. He did a wonderful thing in doing that. And he spent a lot of time, a lot of effort, getting the people to to put the money where it needed to go and get the right people paid to get the job done. He did a wonderful thing. But his later works disproved his earlier works. 
He never had any love for the temple because immediately in verse 18, when the wind of change blows another way, he goes away from the temple. He has no love for, for God. He has no love for his people. And we see that really coming to its lowest point when he kills Zechariah, when he kills him in the middle of the temple itself. His faith was not active. It wasn't working itself out in love and good works. It was not faith. But his faith was also not personal. It was not a living, vital connection to God more than just something that someone else was encouraging in him. And that's the the real tragedy of the story is that Jehoiada attempted, did everything he could, humanly speaking, to instill in Joash the, the right way. But whatever faith, whatever appearance of godliness Joash ever showed was just a vestige, just a shadow, a memory of what Jehoiada attempted to instill in him as a father to a son. His faith was never personal. It was never his own. Much like a car that's, that's being towed, it's, it's hitched, as long as it's hitched to the towing vehicle, it can move very quickly down the highway. But as soon as that hitch is broken between the towing vehicle and the vehicle being towed, that vehicle being towed is going to careen and, and crash. And that's exactly what happened with Joash once Jehoiada was out of the picture. He was no longer being pulled by Jehoiada. And he crashed. His faith was not true faith because it was not active. And it was not personal. And finally, it was not rooted. What I mean by rooted is it was not rooted in God's word. All that God has to say about our lives, about where we're going, about what we're doing, even when that doesn't really uh, match with what we want, what our hearts are leading us to. See, Joash was willing to say yes and amen, to go along with God's word, as long as it fit what he wanted to do. As long as it fit sort of his agenda. But the moment that God's word came to him and pushed him in a way that he didn't like, he put the armor up. He wouldn't listen. He would not hear God and his word. His faith was not faith. It was not active. It was not personal. And it was not rooted. Time would exhaust us to consider our own case in all of those situations. Is ours? My sort of special purview, so my full title is Assistant Pastor of Children, Youth, and Families. Really what that means is that 80% of my life uh, and, and career is spent with the youth. And um, for those of you who are young, even if you're younger or if you're older than that, there's a time in your life uh, where most of your time in church is brought about by those who are bringing you here. That's a good thing. Your parents bring you. Maybe your grandparents bring you. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe, maybe some other relative or, or person that you love and know. And it's good to have people who are encouraging you to be in church, to be thinking about Jesus, to be thinking about God. But there's going to come a time in your life. I don't, I don't hope that nobody's there for you, but there's going to come a time in your life when you're going to have to make some of those decisions yourself. You're going to have to think to yourself, why, why do I come to church? Do I come simply because it's the place that I'm told to be? It's the place that my parents drag me Sunday to Sunday? Or is it the place where I meet with God? Is it the place where I realize that God is speaking specially to my heart, that I see his word and taste it in the sacraments, that I get to experience the love of the family of God and community? Is there a personal connection here? It's important to think about that at some point and to ask ourselves, if we're here 
for a personal connection to the Lord. Some of us also, others of us, come week in and week out and we hear the word of God faithfully proclaimed. We say yes and amen. And then there are times when God's word, the sword of the word, is aimed where we live. It's aimed at our hearts, aimed at the secret sins, the things that we will not, do not want to give up. And I, I know what this feels like. I am of flesh as well. And the moment that that oftentimes happens, we kind of put the armor up. I think, well, that's, that's the way for some people to live the Christian life, but maybe it's not for me. Maybe God has a different direction for me to go. That's not really something that sounds good to me, to serve or, or to die to myself, to die to that sin. We have a tendency to, to hear what we want of God's word, to filter through uh, some of it, and then to block out other passages. You see how that's antithetical to what Jesus calls us to, to what true faith is. True faith is active, it's personal, and it's rooted in all of God's word, especially the stuff that is calling us and challenging us to things that are hard. So we've examined in the first point the nature of apostasy, that it's both real and deceptive. And secondly, the nature of true faith, that it's active, personal, and rooted. And finally, in order to make all of this work, in order to understand how all of this is possible, we need in the third and final place to examine the nature of perseverance. The nature of perseverance. Maybe you've asked yourself the question in reading, in considering Joash's example in this passage before us. I asked myself this question in preparation, and that question is, what makes me any different? What makes me any different from Joash? What makes you any different? Who's to say that 20, 30 years down the line, I'm not going to look back and say, you know what, that whole Jesus thing wasn't really worth it after all. I'll leave my wife, leave my family, do whatever I want, and live for myself, because that's all I've got. Who's to say? Our hope, the ground that we have to stand on as we examine this harsh reality, this difficult thing to grapple with, the ground that we have to stand on is displayed for us beautifully in the example of two figures in Christ's life. The example of Peter and of Judas. Peter and Judas were in a very similar boat, very similar situation, and they both followed similar paths. We often look back and we think, Judas must have been kind of a, a sketchy-looking guy. He would have been easy to, to understand, that's the guy who's going to betray Jesus. But no, everybody looked at Judas and saw a sold-out-for-Christ kind of dude. But again, both Peter and Judas followed similar paths. Both Peter and Judas abandoned Jesus when he needed them most. Both Peter and Judas in a sense, betrayed Jesus to his death. Both Peter and Judas were ashamed to be associated with Jesus, and both Peter and Judas were sorrowful to some extent for what they had done. So why did Peter not end up like Judas? Why did Peter then go on to repent and become a pillar of the church? It's not because Peter had better willpower and could hold on stronger. It wasn't because Peter's faith was better. It wasn't because Peter had the right people, the right Christian background. It's not because Peter had anything in and of himself. If we read our, our gospel accounts, it's for one reason, one reason only, because Christ was praying for him. 
Christ prayed that his faith would not fail, and he prays for each of his loved ones. So what's holding us up? What makes us any different? What ground do we have to stand on? It gives us security. It's Christ. And it's him alone. We're tempted to stand on our own merit. Even good Christian people, we're tempted to stand on the fruit of our faith and not on the root. We are tempted to stand on our, our Christian upbringing, on our membership in the church. We're, we're tempted to stand even on our knowledge and grasp of theology. But none of those things can hold us, not like Christ can. He is our sure foundation. So you must stand on Christ. Stand on Christ, who came to fulfill the, the full breadth of the law, all of its righteous demands, where we could never, ever fulfill them. Stand on Christ, who, who dying took the wrath of God for all of his people and drank that cup to its bitter dregs. Stand on Christ, who rising again conquered sin and death forever for his people. Stand on Christ, who ascended into heaven, is interceding and praying for you even now. Stand on Christ, who promises to come again and make all things new, to wipe every tear away from your eyes. Stand on Christ, who will lose not one of those the Father has given to him. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. The beauty of the, the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only hope in life and in death? That I am not my own. I belong both in body and in soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Stand on him. Rest in him. Find your hope, your anchor in him. And know for sure that it is he who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Let's pray. Great God, our Heavenly Father, you have shown us in many ways throughout our lives how difficult it is, how difficult a road that it is before us. But Lord, if we were to seek to go about it by our own strength, to seek to bear the cross on the strength of our own shoulders, we could never do it. The Lord, help us to give it all to you, to lean wholly on Christ, who is able, who is strong, who is mighty. You, Lord, are holy, and we need our holy Savior to wrap us up in him, to be perfectly united in him. So send us out of here in strength and not in weakness, in confidence and not in timidness. Give us the strength to rest in him and to then share that love with others, being bold, being encouraged. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor.